I, I was working on a sermon. I knew exactly where I was going. I knew what I wanted to say. And an incident occurred this week when the very things that were on my mind and beginning to take shape on the, on the page were words that were going to address an issue that surfaced. And it kind of was frightening because it almost had the appearance that I was writing a sermon to preach at them, to get them, the people that somehow, you know, created the problem. But I assure you that as the Lord laid this message on my heart, nobody was in mind but me. And I, and, and I, I say this every time I, I have the opportunity. When I write a sermon, I write it for myself because I need it and I need it bad. And if you want to listen in as I'm talking to myself, you're welcome to do so. So let's hear what the Lord has to say to Ron today. And, uh, and eavesdrop as, uh, as the Holy Spirit works him over, okay? I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. So he became well known throughout the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read the scriptures. The scroll containing the message of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled it, the scroll, to the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue stared at, at, at him intently. Then he said, this scripture has come true today before your very eyes. All who were there spoke well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that fell from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, probably you will quote that proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, why don't you do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum? But the truth is, no prophet is accepted in his own town. Certainly, there were many widows in Israel who needed help from Elijah's time, when there had been no rain for three and a half years and hunger stalked the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a widow of Zarephath, a foreigner in the land of Sidon. Or to, th to think of the prophet Elisha, who healed Naaman, a Syrian, rather than the many lepers in Israel who needed help. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, jumped up, they mobbed him and took him at the edge of the hill on which the city was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he slipped away through the crowd and left them. I know it's a long passage of scripture, it's a great story, though, and there is so much to just to imagine as you would be in the presence of all that unfolding before you. The applause for Jesus, the questions about Jesus, and then the assaults on Jesus. It all unfolds before us. 
This morning we'll be looking at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And it's significant to note that the Holy Spirit that came upon him as he came up out of the water the first time of his baptism, and the Holy Spirit that took him into the wilderness through the time of testing, is the Holy, same Holy Spirit that was upon him as he went to his hometown, as he went into the area of Galilee to preach, to teach, to heal and do miracles. Our text this morning reveals the fact that when Jesus returned to Galilee, as we read in the Gospel of Mark, actually, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It's interesting that the very message that Jesus began with, as recorded in Mark, is the very message that John had. Jesus is building on the message that John delivered, John the Baptist delivered. The kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus was not only to build upon that message, but it was also to be, to be in many ways manifested through his very life, his death, and his resurrection. And certainly all that he was telling the people about what was yet to come. We read in parallel texts of this particular passage. It's interesting that none of the other gospels mention this account in Nazareth. But there is the reference to the fact that he taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. He was popular. People really liked what he had to say. So Jesus returns to Nazareth, where he grew up. There had had to be some excitement. You know, their hometown boy is coming back. And he's got quite a reputation. He's been teaching and performing miracles, and here he comes. We'll have some time with our, one of our own. The son of Joseph coming home. You wonder if there was some anticipation of his return to Nazareth. It was on the Sabbath when Jesus was presented the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah. And he says to the people, and the people say, all who were there spoke well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that fell from his lips. As Jesus took that scroll and read from it, the people were awed. What was read that day was the prophetic promise of the one coming to deliver the nation of Israel from the tyranny of foreign rule and to recover the nation itself, to bring it to a place where it would be in its fullness as it was in the time of David. They were looking for and expecting the deliverer, the Messiah. And these very words were pointing to that direction and Jesus himself indicated that he was the one to fulfill it. So Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue stared at him intently. Just picture it. Imagine it. Jesus sitting there, and everyone in wonder, but just looking at this man. And they said, the script, and then he said, the scripture has come true today before your very eyes. And then the conversation begins. You can see him turning one to the other. Can this be? Is this Joseph's son? The mystery of who this guy is, is and what he's all about strikes the people. Jesus has just shared what he was all about, what his ministry would be, of whom he came to serve, the good news, the coming of the kingdom. And to make sure they understood what they had just heard, he said, Probably you will quote that proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, 
Why don't you do miracles here in your hometown like you did in Capernaum? Do you, did something come back to you about the similarity of this question that was asked of Jesus earlier? Of when he was in the wilderness. Here again is the tempter raising his ugly head. Remember it, that passage concluded, and Satan left him for an opportune time. And I'm telling you, Satan thought he had him. Satan thought he had another shot at Jesus. Why? Remember the wilderness temptation. If you are the son of God, or basically, if you say who you are, then do your miracles. Prove yourself. And once more, Jesus is being tested. But Jesus says to the people, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And that was kind of a, an introduction as to why, why he wouldn't be accepted. And that was the message that he had to deliver specifically to them. Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, well, the scrolls, or the, the history of their people. He begins to point back to some occur occurrences that they remember and have been down, handed down in oral tradition. Jesus speaks of God's deliverance to the Gentiles, hated by the Jews. That during some of the greatest times of need within the people of Israel, God was responding to the need of others outside of Israel. He first refers to Elijah, rescuing an unnamed widow of Zarephath, who was gathering sticks to prepare the last meal for herself and her starving son in the middle of a famine and a drought that had gone on that would eventually uh, surpass three and a half years. Uh, you ought to read the story. It's a great story and it's a great lesson. It's found in 1 Kings 17. Uh, I just, just to highlight, here, here this woman is gathering the, the, what is needed to prepare her last meal. And Elijah says uh, he'd been sent there by the word of God. And, he's, and he greets her and, and says, go make a cake for me and then bring it back to me. And she says, there's no way. <laughs> All I have is enough just for me and my son. And, and, and Elijah says, no, you go ahead and make the cake and bring it back to me. And the promise is this, there will be enough oil and flour for you to continue to provide for your family all the way through this period, this drought. Where the woman in faith does it. And what, what Elijah said to her was proven to be true. Elijah ministering to a Gentile during one of the greatest periods of need of the people of Israel. And then, Elisha. Healing Naaman, a commander of the Syrian army. Another Gentile outside the camp not a part of the Israelites. Healing him of leprosy. Great story. Second Kings chapter 5. Leprosy. Wanting to be healed. It's a servant girl who was enslaved by this Syrian army that tells the commander that uh, this is the way to be healed. Go see Elisha and he'll tell you what to do. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He gives the commander instructions by a servant to go and, and, and anoint yourself or bathe yourself, dip yourself in the River Jordan seven times. And uh, Naaman isn't up for it. 
Not going to do it at all. But then he is persuaded by some of his own, his own soldiers to do that. And he does it and he's healed. Once more, this man healed of leprosy when leprosy was so common among the people of Israel. This is when the mumblings turned into grumblings. And whispers became shouts of anger. Why in the world would they so quickly turn against Jesus when just a few minutes ago, I quote, spoke well of him and were amazed by gracious words that fell from his lips? The crowd had turned on him. Well, I think there's probably two or three reasons we can at least consider why they may have turned on him. One, there was an expectation of being the recipients of the miracles for themselves because they had been performed in Capernaum. So why not in Nazareth? After all, he's one of them. They were clamoring for his favor because in some ways they felt that he was indebted to them. Number two, but when Jesus reminded them of God's favor on the Gentiles, a woman and also a soldier in need, a soldier ruling, serving a foreign army, an enemy army, they were, they were livid that God would so dare show his, share his blessings and dole it out on Gentiles when there was such a great need within the Israelite people. To think that the Gentiles would be recipients of what was promised to them, God's favored, was to make the Gentiles equal to them, and that wasn't something they were ready to buy into. Finally, if Jesus is who he says or claims to be, the ones to that had been sent to fulfill the words of the prophet, then take care of your own first. Uh, how often do we hear that today? Take care of us first. <laughs> when they heard this, the people in the synagogues were furious. Jumping up, the mob, they mobbed him and took him to the edge of the hill where the city was built, intending to push him over the cliff. But he slipped away through the crowd and left him. Just, just a note here. Uh, is it any coincidence that how Jesus began his ministry is so similar to how it ended? Here he is. He is received warmly by the people until he reveals really who he is and then they're ready to do him in. It happened in Nazareth as he begins his ministry. And it happened in Jerusalem when his earthly ministry came to an end on a cross. There is also the question asked when people read this passage of Scripture, how in the world did Jesus escape this mob? It says, you know, he, and he slipped away through the crowd and left them. How could that be? Well, I kind of land on uh, another situation in the scripture where Jesus was facing a mob. And this is what happened. It's recorded in John 18, verses 4 through 6. This is in the garden. This is the night he was being arrested, to be tried, crucified. 
The crowd is coming, and we read, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing right there next to them. When Jesus said, listen to this, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's a natural escape for Jesus that night. He could could have just walked off. They fell back and knelt to the ground. Same thing could have happened right here on on the edge of Nazareth. They drew back and fell to the ground, and Jesus walked right through them. You know, it's a great story, and I, 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 I try to imagine what it's like to be in those settings. As a matter of fact, I had the opportunity actually to stand at that place where supposedly he was going to be thrown, to his de- thrown over the cliff to his death. It's pretty impressive. But it's more than a story. It, it, it has to have some kind of bearing on us as, as we're dealing with our relationship with Christ. So I'm going to suggest a few things that this scripture proposes that we should consider. The, the, the very thing that Jesus was telling the people of Nazareth, I believe he is telling us today. First off, remember this. As the people of Nazareth were to be recipients of the good news, so are we. We are to be the recipient of the good news. And then Jesus says, he addresses the downtrodden. Well, I think we need to just take some inventory here about where we are in terms of our condition as being downtrodden, being in a position where we need relief from oppressive issues in our lives, issues that could be in the form of illnesses, fractured or painful relationships, unrealistic pressures brought upon us by our peers or unrealistic expectations of those around us, downtrodden by these pressures and tests and challenges that that come upon us. We're also the captives. We at times need to be released from the grips that this world has on us, needing to be freed of our need of stuff, earthly treasures, craving for acceptance and popularity, dealing with greed and pride, all the sins that separate us from God. We need to be delivered from that. We are blind. We see ourselves to be favored over others. We have no empathy or sympathy for the need of that's recognized in the lives of others. We live our own life separate from others. The people of Nazareth were focused on themselves. Jesus was to perform for them. He was to meet their expectations. And what we see in them, I'm afraid that we also see in our churches today. We have made the church to be not his church, but our church. To provide what we want. To serve our preferences. And in some, even so arrogant to believe that our way is the only way. Jesus has been ushered out, dismissed, and his message ignored. As we make his church 
my church. I ran across a quote by Richard Halverson, which I think has done a wonderful job in, in a very concise way, tracking the history of the church up to today. He says, when the Greeks got the gospel, they turned it into a philosophy. When the Romans got the gospel, they turned it into a government. When the Europeans got the gospel, they turned it into a culture. And when the Americans got the gospel, they turned it into enterprise. I believe this is painfully true. What we have done to the church is not necessarily embracing the body of Christ, and Jesus is ahead of the church, ahead of the body of Christ, but we make ourselves the ones who will give order and direction to the church. Instead of doing the very same thing that was evident in this whole story, leaning, depending, listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit pointing us to Christ, who is the head of the church. I, I really it was tempted just to kind of go off on a tangent and spend some time talking about the nature of the church, but I, I don't want to do that. I, I want us to do this journey through the book of Luke and Acts and let it just kind of come to us piece at a time. And if you'll stick with me on this, I think not only will we come to understanding what Jesus is saying to us individually, but I believe what he is also saying to us collectively as the church, as members, not one, members of the body of Christ. But I want to share with you a mark maybe that we should be shooting for. I was in Gainesville, Florida, visiting a church one time, and they have... They had a bulletin that Sunday, and uh, in the bulletin, they printed something that just nailed it for me, and I, I brought it home and, and added it to my, my collection of quotes. I want to read it to you. It, it really isn't a form of a prayer, but just listen to these words. God, make this church a church of the warm heart, of the open mind, of the adventurous spirit, a church that cares that offers a savior to sinners, healing to the hurt, and a challenging, a challenging to the complacent. A church that looks forward as well as backwards, a worshiping church, a praying church, a working church that inspires courage for this life and a hope for the life to come. A church of the living God. I, I just find there's so much in that that really defines what the church is supposed to be. I want to do one more thing uh, before we wrap this up. Uh, you may not remember this, but Matt, some time ago, introduced to us, a, well, he actually read from the book, The Vision, The Valley of Vision. It's, it's, it's a collection of prayers and poems um, of um, Puritans, thank you. <laughs> I need help today, I tell you, man. Of, of, of Puritans. And, and he read the first poem about vision. I've been reading a prayer every morning since I got this book. 
That's, that's part of my exercise, is to, to read one of these prayers. I want to share with you, and, it, and maybe you don't see the connection, but boy, it, just, it landed on me as I was thinking of this morning's message. I want to read to you the prayer that I read this, day, this, this, this morning. The prayer is titled, Happiness. O oh Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from this world, but only in Thee. Let me not think that I shall be more happy by living to myself, for I can only be happy if employed for Thee. And if I desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what Thou dost allot me, teach me that if I do not live a life that satisfies Thee, I will not live a life that satisfies myself. Help me to desire the spirit and the temper of angels who willingly came down to, lower, to this lower world to perform thy will, though their desires are heavenly and not set in the least upon earthly things. Then I shall be of the temper that they are and ought to be. Help me not to think of living to thee in my own strength, but always to look to thee and rely in thee for assistance. Teach me that there is no greater truth than this, that I can do nothing of myself. Lord, this is the life that no unconverted man can live, yet it is an end that every godly soul preserves and pursues. Let it be then my concern to devote myself all to thee. Make me more fruitful and more spiritual from barrenness and my daily affliction and load. How precious is time and how painful to see it fly with little done to good purpose. I need thy help. Oh, may my soul sensibly depend upon thee for all sanctification and every accomplishment of thy purposes for me, for the world, and for thy kingdom. Amen.